RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. So now we're on to the issue of GE uh, here in New Zealand and around the world uh, in terms of, well, food supply is what we're going to be talking about with John Carapiet of GE Free New Zealand, spokesperson for GE Free New Zealand, who's coming on the program right now. John, welcome to Reality Check Radio. Nice to have you. Thank you, Paul. Okay, this is not the most talked about issue. We've all been aware of it for a while, and it was very controversial. Um, I've reminded listeners before on this program recently, I remember when John Campbell had that epic uh, encounter with Helen Clark. So that was then, probably back in the 90s or late 90s somewhere, quite a while ago. Uh, but it seems that either it's gone off the radar with people or there's a different attitude to it. There's a, more of an embracing of it, certainly by the scientific and uh, IP communities, and it seems politicians. So am I right? Has there been a sort of a change since then, quite a change since then up to now? It's an interesting question. I think what happened way back with, with the Corngate scenario and what yeah, was Corn going Gate, on that's right, Corngate, yep. Was that um, it was a global issue. They were introducing in the late 90s GM soy or genetically engineered soy and mixing it up deliberately from the exports out of America so no one would have a choice. So there was a great big global campaign, including in, in New Zealand, to say, well, hang on, you need to have a choice. You need to protect the existing food system from contamination. You need to allow people to have a choice through labeling. You need to track it and you need to test it. So that was what the debate globally has been for the last 20 years. And in New Zealand, there are no genetically engineered foods produced or grown here. There's animal feed being imported and used. But in terms of crops, plants, wheat, um, you know, all of the main, main things we produce, none of it's genetically engineered. And that's because that debate and the Royal Commission that happened and then the legislation that was put in place after that, which is the HASNO Act, the Hazardous Substances and New Organisms Act, what it did was it says, well, if you're going to do a GE release, you need to test it for the risks on human health, animal health, and also the environment. And ironically, that is the laws, the, the laws that are now being called out of date, um, you know, useless, blocking pro progress in New Zealand. Why aren't we following the American route where they've deregulated genetic engineering? And especially with the new versions of genetic engineering, which is gene editing through things like CRISPR, which is easy, fast, anyone can do it, cheap. There's the argument is, well, why won't we do it now? Because you know, we've moved on, in, you know, and, and globally we can do this. But the debates are multiply leveled. First of all, every investment in genetic engineering, including the ones, that, for example, here on ryegrass, um, has an opportunity cost for the alternatives that could also have been invested in that could be implemented now. And New Zealand has been very well served by what are now being called by some politicians and 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 some scientists, you know, out of date laws. Actually, we've been very well served by those laws. They have there is no ban on an application to release GE in New Zealand, which you know I might object to, but actually that's where we've ended up. They they, they passed a law actually around just after you know the Helen Clark saga and, and a few years later, which had a sunshine clause uh, or say a sunset clause, and they said there's no applications for GE released for another two years, and then that quietly lapsed. So the law is actually saying you can release GMOs in New Zealand if you apply and do this rigorous test and check to see what you're actually doing. Now that has been 
Craig, that has chilled the market, as as the entrepreneurs would call it. You know, all the opportunities that they would see to use this technology have been limited, they would argue, because they have to test it for safety and make sure it doesn't harm the environment. Most New Zealanders, I believe, support that. But they're being strung a line to say that it's stopping medicine, which it is not. Medicine is, is, is regulated under a very different set of protocols than agriculture. It is Medicine is not used generally outside in the open environment, whereas food is grown in the open environment. And systems need to be existing so that you're not forced to have it. I mean, you, hopefully you're not forced to have a medical treatment, but usually it's individual treatments. With food, it's about everybody's relationship with food, about our relationship with nature and how we future-proof our country and the world to be more sustainable. And and the argument is that genetic engineering is a magic bullet to do that, in whatever format you may use it in a plant or an animal. The counter-argument, as I mentioned, is that there are alternatives that could be implemented now that are not being implemented. They're being sidelined. The best example is $20 million worth of ryegrass monoculture development, genetically engineered. It's it's not come up with very good results. But for over 10 years, Dairy NZ have known that using mixed forage, so not using a monoculture of ryegrass, but different kinds of plants to feed cattle, will reduce the methane by 30%, maintain production and maintain animal health. But is anyone using that widely? As far as I, I, I know not, they've been told to wait for this GE solution. And they're certainly not encouraged to go organic and be more sustainable through systems change. I don't get that because it would seem that the market would put pressure in the area of the most efficient way to do things, you know, the quickest way to do things. Those are big figures that you just mentioned. You'd think the drivers would be to that. Why aren't they? I think it boils down to intellectual property driving entrepreneurship and innovation. And, and, you know, and it's all the way through government and research institutes and, you know, and obviously commercial organisations. If you can clip the ticket on a solution to anything, whether it's pollution or climate change, if you can clip the ticket on that solution, you've got an income stream forever. If you use an open source or free, you know, a systems change that doesn't actually, it may cost you money, but it's no one's charging you an innovation fee for it, there's less appeal. So the whole global system, including in New Zealand, is set up to create intellectual property. And that's, as I said, it's got an opportunity cost because the things we could actually do practically tend to be either sidelined and ignored or actively suppressed and not adopted. Isn't that basically correct? Isn't that, I mean, I'm a simple guy. Um, I boil it down to simple binary stuff as much as I can. Isn't that just basically corrupt? It's um, it's entrepreneurship and ambition to make profit. Yeah, but if it's driven by just, you know, where is the revenue, where is the ticket clipping opportunity, sacrificing, uh, you know, common sense and the well-being of our natural systems, which we need to live and also the um, the surety of food supply. I mean, are we going to be in the future paying a royalty for every grocery item that we buy because it has this genetic modified component in it or that? It, it, it does have, it seems to me, a corrupting influence. 
Well, I certainly think that's a word you could use. I, I, I think many people, in fact, I, I think the majority of people, including the scientists who are pursuing it, including the politicians who think this is going to be an amazing boon for our country and the world, they probably don't know enough about the details of the science behind it. And as I say, they probably don't know enough about the growing knowledge in, in, in the scientific community of agroecology and the complexity of nature and the interconnectedness of nature. So I think the, the debate that it has to happen, and it, ha and it has been a little bit on the quiet side, because in a way, the public won. I mean, to be honest, Paul, I'm with you. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert scientist. I haven't graduated you know, in science. I am a consumer advocate, and, and I pursue the the debate, as I have done for 20 years, as a representative of ordinary people like you and me, who are stuck between a rock and a hard place, because some scientists, especially when they've got patents and IP pending, are pushing um, a miraculous new technology that can do so much more than we've ever been able to do before. Whereas the other scientists who tend to be independent scientists, including some in New Zealand, who are saying, well, Actually, you need to tie whore on this. You need to think about the scale of risk as especially things like CRISPR, this gene editing, which is just another form of genetic engineering. But it, as I say, it's easy, cheap. Anyone can do it. You know, you could do it in your garage. Anyone can do kind it, worries me. <laughs> totally. What, what could possibly go wrong? Is yeah. the same. Yeah. So regulation in New Zealand has protected us from some of the worst outcomes of what could have happened with genetic engineering here. It's protected us from what has, to some extent, happened in America and other places where increased use of pesticides, contamination of, of natural systems has occurred. Because we had that big argument with Helen Clark and the, and, and the government then, so the Royal Commission, then the 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 outcome of that, the legislation in Hasno that says, well, if you're going to do this, there's no ban. It's not banned. But if you're going to do this, you have to prove safety for human health and the environment. For me, that sounds incredibly reasonable. And it has protected brand New Zealand for 20 years. There's a thing called the non-GMO project in America because the Americans were not given the choice. They had no debate. Now there is much more of a debate in America, even though they're very deregulated and they have lots more GE crops, etc. They haven't got a lot of gene edited products because that's the new wave that's come in. And it's only been developed in the last 10 years, this technology that's easy, cheap, anyone can do it. But what, what some people are aware of is that one of the first of a few products that's been gene edited and launched in America with a big fanfare, turned out to have accidental other genetic changes and elements in the product. It was a hornless cow. I mean, if you Google hornless cow unexpected genetics or genes, you will see fully referenced reports showing that when they actually looked at what these hornless cows that had been genetited had, it had other stuff in there, including antibiotic genes that they weren't intended to have. Now, what they did was then they they changed the animal and they they rebred it and they 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 claimed to have got rid of these this extraneous genetic elements. But the fact that they launched it to market and didn't didn't even know they were there really says that the the legislation or the lack of legislation and the voluntary kind of codes that exist in America are not suitable for something like somewhere like New Zealand where we trade on having the highest standards, the best regulations. You know, we're not clean and green as we would like to be, but uh, I argue well. Let's go in that direction and make it so. Don't throw the flat, you know, throw the, the towel in and say, well, let's just be like America. Let's just have it everywhere. Don't give people a choice. And that's the debate now. 
Yeah, so uh, we could never be a bulk supplier, can we? We're not big enough. So we're niche. We're always going to be niche, aren't we, in terms of, I mean, of food? An interesting question. I mean, you could argue we're a bulk supplier now of dairy. I mean, that's what we do. And, and you know, and every time you hear, oh, we're feeding the world, well, we're not really feeding the world. The people who to, do actually feed the world at a broad level, tend to be women in the developing world on small farms. Now, there's lots of men doing the same as well. And of course, there's industrial farming that we see more of in America and, and other places. But the the aim, I think, for New Zealand is to navigate a, a future which is give respect to nature, give respect to Kopapa Māori, give respect to the ordinary consumer who doesn't really want our food mucked around with, and at minimum give the choice to avoid it, avoid genetic engineered products, which have to be labelled in New Zealand, um, at least in the supermarkets. And so what's happened in that 20 years that, you know, since the, the big debates and the big marches was that we've got protections in place. Most large companies marketing products in New Zealand have excluded GM products from their from their ingredients. All the supermarket-owned brands, if you go to Countdown and ask them what's in your Countdown brand, if you go to Pam's and say what's in your Pam's brand, they will tell you that they've actually got a policy to avoid genetically engineered ingredients because they know consumers don't want it. And I, and I didn't finish making the point about the non-GMO project, which is this huge um, organization now in America, which is labeling products non-GMO because the Americans didn't have the law requiring it. So now... This, this this scheme has developed to say, well, people want to know, so you can label it non-GMO. And guess what? Companies like Fonterra exporting to America and um, Lewis Road Creamery exporting to America are using the non-GMO project label to say we're non-GMO. Well, that, that was the point I made by, by raising that is you've got to have, as a small country, a niche producer, even though we're big in dairy, you've got to have a point of difference. You're never going to you know, smash the huge producers. You, you just you just can't do it. So you have to find your niche, right? And I think for New Zealand, and again, it goes to our values, it's the work. I mean, I think Prince Charles then, King Charles now put it, you know, and he's obviously a big supporter of organics and I support that. Um, he said, work with the grain of nature. And I think going to the heart of this is the genetic engineering, including gene editing, kind of overrides nature. It's it's trying to do something that... It's playing God. It's, it's kind of playing God in a way, isn't it? It's, it's only playing something with natural systems that are high. Well, when you're editing at the gene level, you're rewiring the fundamentals right. of evolution and nature. I mean, Absolutely. Do, and, do we want to go there? You know. Well, some people do, and they want to force us all down that line. That's a debate. So, how far do we allow them to force us down that line, and how how far do we force them back into being more res respectful of nature, restricting the spread and damage that any products they use causes, and also, as I say, and stop drawing funds and investment and research money into this, which is genetic engineering as a magic bullet, when other funding is needed to find systems changes, as, as I've already identified with that mixed forage. There was no patent on mixed forage. That's why it's not being used. But it did what, we, what society says we wanted to do. And there's so many other examples of that. GE ryegrass, mixed forage or mixed cropping. Um, overseas, one of the long debates has been a thing called golden rice. And golden rice has been a, a, a very much a kind of poster for genetic engineering that's 
that's not being pushed to get patents. They waived the patents on this product so that the big companies that owned how they how they would engineer it said, oh, we won't, we're not going to charge you for this one because this is a sign for poor people. This is a sign for poor, starving people in the developing world who need to have more vitamin A in their diet because they might go blind otherwise. So they've they fortified this rice with vitamin A and it's been a very long process to do it. It's been highly opposed by people communities in the countries where it's being aimed at, because as Vandana Shiva, who's very well known commentator on this subject, she said, like, they can get vitamin A from the rice that's not been polished. They can get vitamin A from the weeds growing in the in the, in, in by the side of the road. And they can certainly get vitamin A and other nutrients from food. But the magic bullet solution to help the poor people starving has been promoted as being a great, you know, how could you stop this? How can you yeah. stop? You don't look good arguing uh, against that. But except if you look at the facts, if you listen to the local community saying we don't want this and it doesn't it doesn't actually work for us, the actual science says it doesn't really work. What happened was over the years you had to eat like you know multiple kilos of it. It had to be vacuum packed immediately. It was harvest, otherwise the vitamin A benefit wouldn't maintain. And then, and this is you know it's an interesting one, probably a bit of a sidetrack. But guess who's approved vitamin A rice for healthy, sorry, poor consumption in our country? New Zealand and America. Now, as far as I know, it's not supposed to be marketed in New Zealand. It's but it shows that it, it uses New Zealand's image and reputation to say, well, if, I mean, if it's okay in New Zealand, it must be okay. Right. There are people in the world who think New Zealand has got these high standards, and you know, I'd like us to have those high standards, but just at the end of this story. The EPA, the the the, the um, sorry, the FDA in America, the Food and Drug Administration, when they approved vitamin A rice to be launched into the market after this huge debate and, and and effective failures, they said, "But you can't make a claim that it will actually give you extra vitamin A because it doesn't. It doesn't give you enough vitamin A to make a claim. So all of this and launched and approved in our in our market." But actually, it can't make a claim to do anything. Now, what a nonsense. What an yeah. absolute nonsense. It is a nonsense. There seems to be a lot of pressure, though, to uptick this sort of development. I had David Seymour on this program uh, recently, and one of the things he mentioned, it was in passing. We didn't sort of go for a deep dive or anything. It was in the context of how we you know, um, keep the economy of New Zealand uh, fit for purpose going into the future, and he, he was sort of lamenting the attitude that some people had to genetic modification and, you know, that we were kind of being in the dark ages. And it seemed to me that uh, that indicated that that there is a political will, let's say, to further this. And, I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I'd love to have a conversation with David to, sh to show him some of the documents that I've had released under the OIA, uh, the Official Information Act, that shows the results of those trials of GE ryegrass that he's complaining had to be done overseas. There is no ban on GE trials, even in New Zealand. If they wanted to do them in New Zealand, they could have applied. They would have got a lot of pushback from the public and, and probably the dairying industry to say, you're putting at risk our reputation as being non-GE um, to the world. But that, 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 that push and David's interpretation of the huge opportunities is a global push in, in, in the EU. So a globalist America. sort of mentality. Uh, and in Africa, we've got to help these people in Africa. We've got to transform agriculture in, in, in Europe. We've got to have genetic engineering. 
as I say, largely driven by patenting and profiteering. Um, if you yeah, so that's not t- as sincere as it sounds, really, because well, that's leverage to <laughs> to make. Sincerity is a very good word to raise up because for years these magic bullets not just necessarily genetic engineering, but in a way, you know, the pharmaceuticals, say the, the chemicals we've used in farming for the last 40 or 50 years, they've been seen as magic bullets. Just kill that weed and we'll be okay. And we've known since then that unfortunately they 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 persevere in the environment and they spread into our bodies. And we've got large amounts of, or basically there's, there's chemicals that have spread all over the world unexpectedly and accidentally. We're at risk of doing the same thing with genetically engineered organisms if they are not contained and controlled. So, that's why you know GE Free New Zealand is called GE Free New Zealand in food and environment because the medical uses and, and we we know some of them most re- most recently um, have been have been in existence for some time. They continue to be um, apparently of benefit, and I certainly know that you know individuals being treated by these medicines are benefiting or you know and, and want them to continue. And I don't think there's a big appetite in New Zealand to stop that. I think could you know test it and, and and maintain it and don't enforce it on people. But when it comes to the open environment, that's contiguous. You know, it goes into our water, it goes into our soil, it goes into our air and it goes into our food and the animal's food. So we've got to be very cautious about what we, what we do with genetic engineering and gene editing. And the flip side is it's so powerful. It's easy, cheap, anyone can do it, but also incredibly powerful. So you can change animals. And again, there's been some really awful experiments in New Zealand on genetically engineering animals where um, I had a call about 10 or 15 years ago and the NZ Herald called me up and said, oh, have you heard about the the cows at, at AgriSearch? And I said, well, I've heard about them. Well, they've died because they, they were developing prematurely and their ovaries exploded. So they had to be euthanized oh, because gosh. of these experiments. And you know, apart from the animal welfare issues there, the future animal welfare issues of animals being modified in some clever way to make industrial farming more efficient could be extremely horrific. So well, that's, a, that's, the, a, that's a, a question of morality, really, isn't it? That's bordering that's why that. we need an ethics council. We did have a bioethics council established for a few, a few years just after the Royal Commission, and then it was uh, abolished. So there's no real independent guidance for government or scientists to say, is this ethically or morally correct? And the bioethics council, I believe, should be re-established, especially if politicians and scientists are going to wanting to push this even further than it is already. I'm speaking right now with John Carapiet of GE Free New Zealand. It would seem, again, simple me, that a bioethics component is just, again, flat out common sense. You don't even have to think about it for more than a couple of seconds because you know what can happen if if the checks and balances aren't there. And I would say, without having any knowledge, the consequences of getting it wrong could be catastrophic, couldn't they? I mean, they really could be. We don't know probably what they are, but who knows what happens, what nature does or the effect on nature when something that no one had any clue how it would um, progress, let's say, out there in the wild. We could be in a hugely worse situation. And it could have just been a simple committee that could have stopped it. Well, I, I like the idea of a simple committee. I think that the, 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 the Bioethics Council was quite fraught with some of these very deep issues. But unfortunately... Yeah, that but you would always err on the side of caution anyway. You would always err on the side of caution as a default. I do no harm. 
Well, precautionary pr principle has benefited New Zealand for, for a long time, including in local government. Local governments have got precautionary policies in their plans around GMOs, saying that you, you know, genetic engineering crops and, and plants and animals to make sure that if they were to go ahead, that the, the user will be liable. Like if it goes, if it escapes and contaminates other crops, etc. Um, excuse me. So um, what's happened in New Zealand is the consumer kind of won. The consumer said, we want to have the choice. We don't want it spreading everywhere. We don't want it to be hidden and we don't want to be forced to eat it. And the markets overseas are demanding non-GMO, G-free food. So the markets of consumers and local citizens, the public, kind of got their way, despite even 20 years ago, the same push, oh, you're just Luddites, you don't understand what we're doing. This is going to save the world, feed the poor, stop contamination, stop pollution. So all the same arguments were made. Now, if you look at the US, where it has been deregulated, I do question people like, you know, David Seymour and even Dr. Gluckman, the, the former chief scientist, they're saying that they, they back, you know, advancing and kind of rushing us into this they think we've been we've been slow and we've been delayed and we need to rush into it more. But I really question that the, the, that point of view is because we've been very well protected from the worst outcomes that we have seen overseas by our legislation in New Zealand. We export to the world as clean, green and ethical to some extent, and we can do more of that. There's global demand for non-GMO, GE-free food. And I think if you did a research of all the nations in the world, which countries would you expect, you know, sustainable, ethical, organic, clean, fresh, natural, GE-free food to come from? New Zealand would be up there on that list. So it's yeah. part of our brand identity that we're putting at risk here, as well as to some extent, a suppression of scientific debate, because to listen to the, to the main research institutes, it's, you know, it's all it's all over. There's no debate. You know, we know how to do this and we can do it. Well, every individual genetic engineering event has unique properties. You know, Dr. Jack Heinemann, who is a senior scientist, professor, sorry, Professor Jack Heinemann at Canterbury, he's been a world expert in advising governments and organizations. How do we actually check safety? And he's the one who's most recently gone out and said, it's the scale of risk that we're not taking into account. If if gene editing crops and, and animals are being used widely, every one of those events could have a an interactive or cumulative effect or just the expansion of land and water areas being used with these organisms expands the risk profile. So that's why the regulation is so key. And the, one of the questions I'd ask any of the people promoting us to go down the American route is, what have we actually missed out? What in America, in the 20 years of deregulation and their most recent use of gene editing, what have we actually seen that has really stopped us from progressing, especially when there's alternative ways to progress? I mean, you know, there was a red apple developed. I think it was an apple, red skin, red fleshed apple. Fanfare around the world actually already existed, hmm. conventionally bred, essentially the same thing. But they didn't do their research. <laughs> well, it's a very interesting thing. I think there is a specialization, as I say, you know, the, the, the people in the, in the gene labs may not be agroecologists. They're not farmers. They're not consumers, or they are at some level, but they're not thinking about what does the ordinary consumer all over the world want, including in China, including in America. And they don't want um, more processed, more industrialized food. They want more natural and more um, healthy food. Sounds like a hubris 
at work and and ego and and profiting of ip yeah and that too but you know you can't be looking like uh, you, you know you're not the the world standard scientist doing the world standard stuff or would be left behind you know and doing the old stuff that just ain't sexy anymore you know i remember at the royal commission someone saying that we'll be left behind you know and i said well where's the race to where are we racing to? Are we racing to more interventions into natural systems of the type that genetic engineering promises? Or are we racing towards a more integrated, holistic approach to agriculture and our relationship with food, our relationship with farmers, etc.? And so the race to somewhere is an interesting kind of like challenge. And also feeding the world is an interesting challenge. But again, those promises have been made for many decades. There's more people starving. There's excess food in the world. There's obesity as well. So the industrial models of um, agriculture that do lend themselves to genetic engineering quick fixes are, are not going to be the solutions that we need. One thing I've heard uh, talked about quite a bit is, you know, the emissions from livestock here in New Zealand. And that seems to be focused on as a way we can lower our overall emissions. And I think farmers are feeling quite defensive about that. And that genetic modified food for livestock is some kind of solution or editing the genes of the livestock themselves, the no horn cow again. And that is promoted, that line of thinking is promoted because of the climate crisis. You're talking about consumer pushback before sort of keeping this at bay. But when you've persuaded the consumer that there's a climate crisis, they could be less likely to push back because they think there is an, an even greater threat available. And I kind of get the feeling that that attitude might be starting to sink in. Have you noticed that? Uh, I haven't really noticed it except from the promoters of that idea. Um, most people that I speak to are at least aware that there's other ways of doing things. I mean, often they say, well, why don't they just to reduce the stock numbers on the land, you know, which obviously has implications for profit. profit. But, you know, as I said, we know that mixed forage will reduce methane by 30%. Yeah, but it's never talked about, John. That's the problem. No. If it's not an option that people are aware of and they are only knowing what they're hearing about, yeah. then it's likely, uh, the point I'm making is likely that, that that sort of holding back by consumers starts to wear off, starts to dissipate, and it, and it is not strong enough. I, I think it's a bit. Like, I think it's a bit like the scientists themselves. There's almost two tracks of scientists, and I and I don't want to demean the scientists who really believe that genetic engineering and gene gene editing is going to be this huge boon. And apart from maybe the profit behind it, they're often motivated by trying to help address these these problems you know that we have in the world. Yeah. And you may be right that especially younger people may think you know they've been educated at university where they've been given and at school given a lot of promotion of these technical quick fixes but it's that societal basis and context of that which they may have a le less um deep understanding of well, i can just imagine a young person you've just mentioned a young person saying or me saying to well, I wouldn't say one of my daughters because I've, I've never raised this before, but in that age group, you know, I don't think we should genetically modify livestock or any of the feed that um, that, that we feed them. And they might say, but, but dad, there's a climate crisis. Yeah. You know, so it's a way we take action with the tools we've got now. Yeah. Yeah. It's delayed 20 years on that ryegrass and it's still not ready. And, and in fact, you know, as I say, I'd love to talk to, um, to, to David Seymour and others because the, 
the results so far, and again, I'm not, I haven't got the, the I've only seen the OAA re- re- report, but it said that it, it changes the milk. So I'm not sure consumers really want the milk changed, but it does reduce methane as a percentage of total um, greenhouse gas emissions by 15%. Now, 15% sounds like a lot. It's not 30% that mixed forage would do, but 15% seems okay. But it's 15% of the total, it reduces by 15% of the total greenhouse gas emissions from the animal. So it's not 15%. Yeah, from the the animal, excuse me. It might be 5% if we're lucky. So it's millions of dollars have gone in to delay action, and we've got a 5% potential reduction for a more monoculture, which farmers will have to clip pay to, so they can clip the ticket on the on the on the license. So I, I think you're right. I think that well, that's the reason why we need a debate. And unfortunately, the mainstream media are quite reticent to really debate this. Why? Well, because I think there's a very dominant message coming through. I mean, the Productivity Commissioner published a report, and it was so flimsy. And I think David Seymour might have mentioned it, and I know other people have mentioned it. Um, it's saying, oh, we've got to adopt GE because, you know, it's, it's the way the world's going, and it's, you know, blah, 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 blah. There was no evaluation of the benefits of non-GE production and exports to New Zealand and developing that. And as you say, I, mean, I, I would hate to think that non-GMO food – Food that's more natural and organic becomes a niche prospect in the whole world. It's, it's kind of heading in that direction. But if we if we have to be a niche producer of clean, healthy, natural food that's not genetic engineering, I don't think that's going to be a niche for long. I think that's going to be an overwhelming demand globally for a very, very long time. More money in that, do you think? Well, I would love the Productivity Commissioner to have done the evaluation, but they didn't. They literally talked to through two or three people in industry and said, oh, they think it's a great idea, so it must be. And it's very flimsy. Well, that's not a great work product, is it? No. And that's why when I hear it being cited, it's a bit like the, the golden rice. When you hear certain things being cited by proponents or, or, or people who think it's going to be a great idea, you just wish that you could have a few more minutes to explain to them the other side and the other side of the debate. Um, I was interviewed, interestingly, on News Hub The Nation about last July, actually. Mm. And it was a real hard talk kind of interview, somewhat different from this. I mean, why should I listen to you? Why are you arguing against the chief scientist? Why are you stopping us? How dare you? Sort of. It was good. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a robust yeah. interview. But I was very disappointed that they never mentioned it when they launched the program on air. They never mentioned this interview's coming up at the end. They never pulled it out as a as a segment that people could find it. You'll never find it. It's actually a really good interview, but you have to go to their firewall or you know behind their news wall yeah. and news hub. Yeah. And on July the second, twenty twenty two, at forty four minutes fifty into the <laughs> interview program, you'll find this really robust debate that's completely lost in the in the internet. You would have thought that would have been, in their minds, uh, something that that viewers would have been interested in watching and they would have promoted it. Look, um, it's election year, John, and we mentioned David Seymour. He's probably not unlike many of the other politicians. I haven't heard any of them really specifically comment on this before. They may have. I'm sure they have. So uh, I see in the material that you have out that you're asking or suggesting that people ask MPs and party leaders about uh, some points. So, so should this be how big of an issue for an election, given there are a lot of issues at the moment? Um, should this be, and what sort of questions should people be asking of their uh, potential elective, elected representatives, considering they're the ones in parliament and, and can 
you know, can stop this sort of thing or modify it or, or set the rules, set the terms? What are you suggesting that people do? I would like them to engage in the debate, whether it's direct with MPs, send a postcard, write a letter, have a conversation on radio, whatever they can do to make sure that you're absolutely right. There's so many other issues, but this is a sleeper issue that's was kind of settled until recently with this global push to unsettle it in New Zealand. And I think that if we can, you mentioned a number of words along these lines, if it was a conscious conscience vote in Parliament, every MP from whatever party should be allowed to, to know what is being pr- 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 you know, pr- proposed and what the implications are. So they're proposing partial deregulation of gene editing in, in plants initially, and then animals potentially. They're arguing that this is what's gone on overseas and it's going on overseas, so we need to do the same. I ask people to question that. I ask people to question the promises that have been made over the last 20 years to feed the poor, to create more product, to you know help farmers, and see what's actually resulted from the way genetic engineering... So where's the evidence, basically? Show me, uh, show me show the, the evidence and, sh- and look at the evidence to show that it wasn't the success we might have thought or hoped it might be. And then there's the, the issue of, of... I mean, it goes hand in hand with things as diverse as artificial intelligence, actually. These are highly powerful technologies that need to be regulated. Well, that's a very good equivalent that you've just mentioned, because there seems to be a lot of thinking right now about downsides of AI. It seems to come just naturally to people. They can see that it could be some sort of very bad threat. No one quite knows what form it will take. We had an interview on um, just a day or so ago about that, whether, you know, consciousness can emerge out of a complex computational system it turns out that the opinion of our guest was no it can't because nature's too complicated it's 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 too yeah just complicated it's so complicated that that's not possible that is not the model of nature i, I guess we're kind of talking about the same thing here we are. And, and, and the clever thing that genetic engineering and gene editing does is it piggybacks on nature to to do things that nature potentially could allow, but we're doing it in the lab and then marketing it. And I think it goes along with synthetic biology. It goes along with nanotechnology, gene- geoengineering, all of these big, think big ideas or, you know, or, or uh, uh, um, technologies extremely penetrative into nature and into humanity so they need to be regulated and and you know the, the question of deregulation which is essentially what the debate's about do we carry on regulating like we have maybe change the regulations the government is looking at medicine and medical uses in the lab but in terms of the has yeah, no but act, we know john that things can escape from labs we found well, that out. totally and exactly so that's an obvious lesson and learning to be made. But, and, and it's happened with ag- agricultural products as well, actually. So things have leaked away. I mean, wheat, which has never been commercialized, GM wheat, occasionally pops up in Australia and Canada. It escaped from trials done 10, 10, 20 years ago, and it still pops up. You know, canola, same, canola crops that have basically contamination spreads because nature is contiguous. So going back to your question about the, the, the debate that needs to be had with politicians is to say, at least protect organic and non-G production in New Zealand, because we're marketing ourselves globally and we're making huge amounts of export money by being clean, green, GM free. At least protect nature 
from the worst impacts of a GE organism. And that includes viruses and that includes bacteria and fungi, which are, again, highly appealing for industry to say, oh, we can do this and we can do that. Well, maybe you can, but do it inside. Even the waste from a vat-fermented GE organism could have risks to the environment. So the whole, you know, and, and the other argument along the lines of, you know, we need to stop climate change, this artificial meat, lab-grown meat, this is, again, a, a bit of a hype. I mean, there's lots of alternative non-meat vegetarian foods. In fact, New Zealand producers make some great products that I buy regularly. I was very annoyed when Impossible Burger came along and was promoting GM soy as its main ingredient, along with GE Horton's yeah. And we actually argued with them about that because we said, well, this is not what consumers want. And believe it or not, they've changed it and they're not using GM soy is their main ingredient anymore, but in New Zealand, they are in America. But all of these kind of promises need to be scrutinized. And I would say that politicians need to protect nature and prioritize natural systems over any gene opportunity that might have. And again, you can, you know, pe pe pests. How can't we use gene drives to kill the possum? Well, uh, there's a very strong argument that that needs to be discussed by the global community at the United Nations before any country looks into gene drives and implementing them in the real world. The, the other argument would be to absolutely ban the release of genetically engineered viruses, bacteria and fungi because they cannot be controlled. And once they're in the ether, as we know, they can cause big repercussions globally. Um, I think animal welfare has to be high on the agenda. A lot of the push for these alternative meats uh, and lab-grown meat, uh, I didn't quite finish. The evidence so far is that they could be worse for the environment and carbon because the synthetic or the, the, the products that have to go into these processes come from sources that are not sustainable. So there, there's lots of issues with the idea of because we can just grow meat in a vat and it'll all be okay. Highly processed, not good for our guts. I'd also argue that I don't think that there should be any risk of eugenics emerging. I'm sorry, there is a risk of eugenics emerging, and I think we need to counter it. Eugenics being, well, why don't we just engineer human beings to be better? Um, it could be their eye color. It could be their intelligence. It could be lots of things. Again, there's enough sci-fi movies out there to say, oh, yeah, I can get the picture. We've got to stop the idea of perfect humans and imperfect humans, of improving humanity and um, degradating or, or, you know, or undermining ordinary people who may not be beautiful, may not be even fully able. Well, like me. <laughs> or like all of us. But that's what I mean, like all of us. I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a horrific version of, of human genetic engineering that, again, needs to be opposed. And, um, and I actually think... I mean, the Green Party, for example, has got a very good policy on protecting organics and, and GE um, free. And some of the other smaller parties have also got it. I think Winston Peters' party also had a very good policy. I mean, even Labour has, has, has supported the ongoing legislation that we've got. It may get reviewed, but that review must not be opening up the door to wholesale genetic engineering or gene editing in New Zealand. We've got to invest in the alternatives. And my final point on that was... Why can't we subsidise farmers to make the transition to more sustainable organic farming? Why can't we help them do it and stop them being constantly their backs at the wall for profiting and making a, making you know making a living without 
also supporting them to make the changes we need to make. And those changes are not more monoculture ryegrass. They're mixed forage, they're diversity of farming, they're thinking of working with nature and rebuilding our soil. Soil is probably the best solution we have globally to rebuild healthy soil that is carbon rich is probably the best opportunity to solve our climate crisis we've got. And it's rarely on the, the mainstream agenda. It needs to be. Boy, a lot to be done, huh? A lot to be done. Uh, and a big effort the there. You, you've the got some heavy lifting there. Say again? You've got some heavy lifting there, I can tell well, you. Well, I, I think the consumer is with us. And, 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 you, know, and you can argue it's ignorance. You know, well, well, no, if they knew more, they'd love it. Well, in the 20 years that I've been studying this, this, this subject, and globally, at least 60% of consumers everywhere want non-GMO. Yeah. Now, that might be argued against by, oh, no, this is going to save this and save that. But that's a very, very big starting point for New Zealand to market ourselves as GE-free and maintain that point of difference in the market, especially against countries like America or Brazil that are going wholesale towards it. You've got a website that people, I'm picking you have, that people can go and visit if they want to know more? Well, gefree.org.nz is, is, um, is the main site for GE-free New Zealand. GMWatch.org is a global site yeah. that is extremely good. And um, I mean, I, I, again, I'd look, I'd, I encourage people to do the research, especially if they care about the developing world, because that's often the thing that, you know, oh, it might be good for bourgeois, you know, rich white countries or you know, mixed countries like New Zealand or whatever. But what about the poor people in Africa? And Bill Gates and other people are very busy pushing those kind of arguments. But again, I saw a report um on, on Twitter, it was a recent report on the fact that Africa has not been well served, even by the Green Revolution promises, you know, over the last 30 years. The ordinary farmers are yeah. not receiving the benefits of genetic engineering um, in any way. It, it tends to odds towards larger companies. So absolutely a big debate. But I hope that, you know, people need to remember that we've dodged a bullet. In the last 20 years, we haven't had increased glyphosate sprayed everywhere. So it's in our bodies, in our waterways, like in America. Um, and so we need to protect what we've preserved so far and not go down a pathway because of these, you know, these promises of solutions when there's alternative solutions. But we're not doing that because they can't clip the ticket. John Carapiet of GM Free New Zealand. Thank you for coming on the program. That was fascinating to listen to. I feel like I know a whole lot more than I did, though right. I've always had a gut feeling, well, for a while now, that there's, you know, that I'm not comfortable with this. That's just me. But uh, that has been there for, for I, I used to kind of think that we should be, you know, trying to stay up with things, keep up with things. But recently, uh, well, maybe well, it's an age thing. Well, yes and no, we are staying up with things. The evidence suggests that you should not be releasing genetically engineered organisms willy-nilly into the environment. You need to regulate them and you need to pursue what I'm saying is brand New Zealand's opportunity. Yep. And all the scientists, as I say, they're not they're not doing it for the wrong reasons necessarily, but they have to look at the complex. They can get a bit carried away though. I mean, that's in the nature. Silo. Yeah, in the side. Yeah. And and so and it's and, and and MPs are very much you know with the whim of the people, also with the whim of the, the most loud voices. The people need to make their voice heard again because we did have those big marches into the two thousands with Madge, Mothers Against GE. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not arguing for big marches. A letter, a conversation to Oh, your come own. on, there's nothing like a big march, John. All right, all right. It's exciting. Cool. 
<laughs> you never know. It might happen to happen. I actually think that, as I say, the people won. They did the big marches. They yeah. won. Now yeah. it's for us to lose it yeah. under the pressure. You've got to maintain that, that status. Thanks for coming on the program and uh, all the best to you. Thanks very much, Paul. All the best to you. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.